the empire of lies. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines in an atmosphere of open debate, free speech, and no censorship. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So, it's Thursday after the election, and we still don't know some things. Is that it, Rod? Yeah, that's correct. You still don't know about Arizona, um, some things going on in Oregon, I think California as well, I believe. Uh, I saw Allison Hayden tweeting about that. So, yeah, still, still, still a couple of places. Now, we do know a few things. Gavin Newsom was reelected in California, so I'm sure you're thrilled about that. Do you even know who is running against Gavin Newsom? No, I have no idea. Well, that was a problem. No one in California did either. Is a guy, Brian Daschle or, so, or something like that. I don't even know. You've never heard of him. I've never heard of him. He was a guy running for the governorship of the country's most populous state. But Republicans are so irrelevant in California that we had no idea who he was. Now, on Oregon, speaking of which, our guest this first hour is Matt McCaw from the Greater Idaho Movement. They're seceding, and they're succeeding in seceding. Isn't that right, Rod? Yeah, no, it is, it is rightly, and it's something that the media doesn't want to touch. I know Fox is the only major mainstream media outlet that I've seen that's touched it a little bit. Yes, and it, it really is a big story because it's counties in Oregon were seceding from Oregon. So there you go. Now, in the second hour, we have the great Carl Aaron with us. Carter's going to be here and talking about the various stuff going on in the news. And Elon Musk, I assume, will come up. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Rod, what's the name of the show? You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Okay, let's go to Arizona. Not really. We're not going anywhere, Rod. We're just sitting here. But let's talk about stuff in Arizona. And first, let's play the attorney, Harmeet Dillon. Harmeet Dillon talking about Arizona in this first clip. Because what's going on there, Rod? Why? You know what else is weird about Arizona? Carrie Lake's opponent never debated. Did you see that? I don't think that's the worst partly. I think that's the fact that she's the secretary of state and didn't recuse herself from being a part of these elections. So she's in charge of her own election. And of course, the Democrats don't even bat an eye to it. Right. So so let's hear Harmony Dillon in the first clip today on the backstory. Hit it. As a Fox News alert, these are long voting lines in Arizona. That was yesterday's chaos at polling sites across the state, particularly in Maricopa County, the population center of Arizona. That chaos continues today. There's a live picture from vote counting underway in that county, which includes Tempe and Phoenix. We are told we received new results at the top of the hour out of that county, but they are apparently still delayed. What is going on exactly? Harmeet Dillon is the chairwoman of the Republican National Lawyers Association. She's in Phoenix tonight, where legal challenges may soon be underway. She joins us now. Harmeet, great to see you. What is the latest in these two races? 
Well, the latest, Tucker, is that the Maricopa County party is like way behind. The county is way behind in counting these votes. And one of the reasons here is that they switched a couple of years ago to what's called a vote center model. So instead of the old-fashioned model where you would go vote in a precinct, they actually uh, cut the number of places you could vote by two-thirds. So it made it a little harder and less accessible to vote. And then they don't have pre-printed ballots when you go to vote. So wherever you wander and show up, they then print a ballot for you, which takes time. And if the printers are screwed up and the tabulators are screwed up, which is what happened in Maricopa County despite testing, which is the job of the county officials, then you have the chaos that you're seeing on the screen there. And you have two-hour lines. You have poorly trained election officials who aren't used to this model telling people they can just go to another place to vote, but they can't. When they go to the next place, they've told, they're told they've already voted. This disenfranchised voters yesterday, and we went to court with the two campaigns and the RNC to go and try to get a judge to keep the, uh, to keep the uh, Maricopa County voting places open longer. The judge rejected this, and so people were disenfranchised by this chaos. And so there's a lot of things that when Carrie Lake becomes the governor of Arizona, she needs to do to confirm, to convene a legislative session to make several changes, I believe, to Arizona law so that this never happens again and that people can have confidence in the outcome of the elections here. We still have a third of the ballots that haven't been counted. I mean, compare and contrast that with Florida, where they had uh, results very quickly. And that's as a result of all this experimentation and other shenanigans that are going on, like Mark Zuckerberg's organizations still giving in-kind contributions to uh, to the recorder's offices in Arizona, even though Zuckerbucks have been banned. So there, there you go. It's very confusing. And last I saw, Carrie Lake seems to be behind, right? Is that what you're saying, Rod? What they're saying is that Carrie Lake is behind. Uh, I saw the numbers very slightly. Right. So we we obviously don't know what's going on. No, we have another clip. This is Carrie Lake herself. Is this on Tucker again? Yes. Yes. So let's hit hit it with this clip. Hit it. Like, thanks so much for coming on. Where do you think you are in this? Uh, well, I, I feel 100% certain I'm going to win. The question is, how big will that win be? Can you believe this, Tucker? We still have 650,000 votes that have not been counted. And guess who these voters are? They're the people who showed up on Election Day. Right. They're the people, 275,000 of them are people who brought their mail-in ballots to the polls on Election Day because they don't trust the mail and they don't trust the drop boxes. So guess who those voters are? There are voters. And we're only down by a few thousand votes right now. When those votes come in, I think we're going to see a lot of liberal minds kind of blowing up. Uh, this seems, I, I mean, I'm not alleging a crime, but broadly speaking, it's just criminal to screw it up this badly. Like, did anyone know this was going to happen? Are you confident that it's on the level? It's just so outrageous. What is this? I'm not shocked at all. I mean, they've been calling me an election denier. I've been sounding the alarm on 2020, November 3rd election, which was disastrous. And we had problems in the August 2nd primary as well. And now we have the same problems. They have all this time to 
to get this figured out. And you know where the main problems are? 20% of those machines went down, the tabulator machines. And I noticed they were primarily in Republican areas of town, Arcadia, Anthem, a lot of different areas. It was really a shame. We ended up voting in a very liberal part of town because we can choose which vote center to go to. And they said they'd had no problems. The bigger issue is we can't keep having this problem. This is what I've been trying to say. I want all Democrats, independents, and Republicans to trust in the system. And when I win, and trust me, we will win this, this is going to be top of my agenda. Day one, I'm going to take my hand off the Bible. We're issuing a declaration of invasion at the border. And I'm getting my lawmakers, I'm getting the legislators to a special session to change our elections so that they are fair, honest, and transparent. And we get rid of those machines that are not reliable. And and really, um, obviously, we saw what kind of problems they can cause. So what do you think of her plan to, you know, look into election issues and take it seriously? Something I think Donald Trump should have done about 2018. Do you agree with that, Rod? Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, I I like Harry. You know, I know she's a uh, I agree with Al Killer. She handles the media very well. They don't know what to do with her because she's a former media person. So she knows how to handle them. And um, as far as election goes, uh, I'm with it. You know, I I think I still think she's going to win. She's going to pull out. I think the turnout was all, um, you know, 70 percent for her. And of course, these mail-in ballots, you know, 70 percent for uh, Katie Hobbs, who held the the slave auction in high school. So, um, you know, I'm I'm excited to see what she's going to do when she gets in office. Well, she had a slave auction with all the Mexicans who were coming over the border, right, Rod? <laughs> no, this was about, uh, I guess, 30 years ago almost. I think in like 19, early 80s or something like that. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think she was. I think uh, it was about African slaves. And uh, she does, that's why she doesn't want to debate because that question would uh, blow up. Where the hell did Carrie Lake find black people in Arizona? That's why I want to know. Okay, Katie Hobbs, Katie Hobbs. Richard Pryor had an old joke. Yeah, Kate Hobbs, forgive me. Care Lake would have freed the slaves. But where did Kate Hobbs find the black people? And the Richard Pryor's old joke about black people in Arizona was the black people in Arizona are in the penitentiary. That was a prior joke. He was talking about his lack of black fans in Arizona. But that's a little bizarre. A slave auction? Okay. Now do you know who's excited about the presidential race, though? Joe Biden. Joe Biden sees the fight between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And really, it seems to me there's a one-way fight. Rod, do you think the fight between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump is really between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump? Or is it Donald Trump? What do you think, Rod? I think the threats. Uh, no, I know. I see the threats from Donald Trump about DeSantis, and I don't see it the other way. So you're right about that. Um, and you know, Trump's being kind of a bully. He's kind of like, if you think you're going to run, you're not going to get my voters. Right. Yeah. Because Trump sees them as his voters, but really, they're the Tea Party people. And so, but Joe Biden is excited about that. And so, it's the next clip is Joe Biden answering a question about DeSantis and Trump. And listen up, hit it. Very, very quickly, um, 
resounding victory in Florida uh, last night. Who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. One more. Now, he sounded, you know, baffled, but he's he's President Biden. But he sounded happy about that. What's your take, Rod? Yeah, the Democrats, they are bloodthirsty for that. And, um, you know, they propped up certain Republican candidates. Uh, they bragged about that. So they, they do want the DeSantis versus Trump fight. Now, I don't do you think they really want that? Because I think, honestly, DeSantis, if DeSantis was the nominee, if Trump stepped aside today and said, I'm not going to run and I endorse Ron DeSantis. See, that's the thing. People talk about Trump not wanting to concede. I'm worried about him not endorsing anybody who's not him. Do you worry about that somewhat, Rod? Uh, no, I don't worry about it, Lee, because I know he won't do it. So um, it's either him or it's either all or nothing. It's either Trump runs in 2024 or it's, you know, he throws his hands in the air and says it's up to you guys. So you don't think there's any way he would endorse anyone else? No, his ego wouldn't allow it, Lee. Well, that, that's a bold prediction, but you're probably right. I got to say, you're probably right. So this is the problem with Trump, among others. You know, there's a lot of problems. And like one of them is he did not pick winners. The people, you know, in the House he nominated, almost all of them lost. Did you see that, Rod? Yeah, I think uh, Jack Passup would put it out. I think he was like um, 97%. I guess the 3% from the House didn't, you know, with the losses. Yes. But, you know, some of the people, you know, 97% sounds high. I'll, I'll, just based on the numbers I knew he lost, it sounds high. Does 97% sound high to you? That, that, I'm just repeating what I read. I don't, I don't know how true it was. I didn't really look into it, but... Um... So that's that's what I saw. It was like 90 something in the 90s. So I think it was like 97 percent. Now, there's new news about Paul Pelosi and David DuPape is the, the person who assaulted him. Did you see the, the the indictment came out and had a number of details about what happened that night? Did you happen to see that, Rod? No, you beat me to that. I didn't I did not see that. Uh, so you, you got I'm waiting for you to tell tell us about that. Okay, so first off, he was not in his underwear. He was in a sweatshirt and pants. Also, the police were there, and DuPape hit him with a hammer about 15 seconds after the police got there. So if people were picturing, you know, Pelosi wandering around the house for an hour or something while the police waited and nothing happened. That's not what happened. The police were there. And within 15 seconds, and apparently the call came in. And do you know who you heard that it was said that DuPape, his name was David and he's a friend? Did you hear that being said? And people like Dinesh D'Souza said, why is Pelosi saying DuPape's a friend? And I said, I saw no evidence that Pelosi said that. Remember that, Rod? Yeah, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Or that Pelosi said he was his friend. Well, it turns out that Pelosi didn't say that at all. DuPape said it. 
he was in the background on the phone with the dispatcher, and he said, my name's David, and I'm a friend to the dispatcher. And also, he threatened Pelosi for being on the phone. And that makes sense. So a picture is starting to emerge that is more consistent. Now, some people might say, well, why do you believe the police report? I'm not saying I believe it. I'm saying that's what's being reported. And unless I have something else, I'm going to go with that because it's consistent with everything else I've seen. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, I think they just need to release some type of footage. I mean, just release the overhead footage of him breaking into into the house. Like, why can't you just do that simple thing? I mean, what you know, however long it took him to break in, uh, they showed the picture of the broken glass door uh, where where the handle is. But why can't we just see that? You know, five, ten second footage. Well, another thing is reported was the the police were wearing body cams. So in this indictment, the police were wearing body cams, and I still say. I want the body cam footage released because as in the George Floyd case, every time they don't release the body cams, I can pretty much guess what they're covering up. Does that make sense? I haven't seen a case where they withheld the body cam footage and it turned out to be nothing. Does it make sense, Rod? Yeah. Uh, if you remember when Ron Emanuel was uh, mayor of Chicago, he withheld the, uh, it wasn't body cam footage. I think it was the uh, dash cam footage of Laquan McDonald getting shot. You remember that? Yes. Now, what do you think of that? I was rewatching at the end of the night because Laquan McDonald, I do not think, I won't say he was murdered, but I will say that was the best case I thought that Black Lives Matter had because Laquan had a knife and he was not approaching the police. But things happen quickly. What do you think about that? Um, no, you, that's what I, I believe. That's definitely, if you're talking about Black Lives Matter, then yeah, Laquan McDonald, definitely, uh, that was a valid case. Um, and they never bring up Fernando Castile, and that's always so weird to me. The guy was killed in his car? Yeah, yeah. I guess Facebook? Cause the, yeah, I guess because the police officer is Hispanic. They, don't, they never bring it up. And I have a theory about that. I think they want you to believe the worst cases. In other words, if they can get you to buy into all the lies about Trayvon Martin, that's a lot better than a valid case. And saying, because again, my take on Laquan McDonald, he was a young man that set off riots a few Thanksgivings ago in, uh, I, I won't say riots, I'll say big demonstrations in Chicago. Uh, so we'll, we'll that was about four years ago, I think. Does that sound right, Rod? No, that was longer than that. Maybe six, seven, because Ron was the wow. mayor. So yeah, something like that. It was before. Yeah. It was before. It was before Trump was in office. So yeah. Time flies. Okay, so that was a big case in Chicago, and when the footage came out, Laquan, who had a knife, it, in other words, I think that's significant. He didn't have a gun. He had a knife. He was moving away from the police, and I think his back was to them. Am I right, Rod? Rod? Yeah, he was going away from the police, so he had he posed zero threat. And like I said, the dash cam footage showed that, and the police officers started shooting, and they were telling him, you know, drop the knife, drop the knife. But he was going away from the police, so there was no, there was no threat. Uh, there was no threat. There was no reason for that. And Rahm Emanuel, um, who left the Obama administration to run for mayor, 
And uh, Biden, uh, Obama, you know, never really uh, addressed that. Yeah. And also the black actors who I talked to in Chicago and I knew a number of them, they hated Rahm Emanuel. Did you get any sense of that? I mean, all I don't know. Black- yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Rod. I really don't know too many people who like Rahm Emanuel. Uh, more people like Ari Emanuel, his brother, one of the three, uh, because he's, you know, you know uh, agent to the stars. But I really don't know too many people who like Rahm. And uh, they, I used to read the rumors. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, Lee, that Rahm Emanuel used to yell like, like at Obama like he was a child while he was in the White House. Yeah. Now, now Ari Emanuel, he, uh, he managed Turtle and Drama. Is that correct? I never, I never watched that show, Lee. But uh, yeah, that in, okay, in, the, yeah. In, in Entourage, yeah, that's who he managed, Turtle. Yeah, right. Okay. So anybody who gets a reference, he did not actually manage a turtle. It was the name of a character on the HBO show. But, uh, but it's not a real turtle. Don't be confused. So let's listen to this final clip and get all the clips out of the way now. This is talking about Elon Musk being a threat. And I'll talk about one of his projects. Well, let me do it now. Do you remember Elon Musk Boring Company? Yeah, I do, Lee. Isn't that when he was giving out those flamethrowers? Nope. The Boring Company was his idea for building basically tunnels underneath the surface of cities. For instance, Competing with the highway system in L.A., you'd have a system of underground tunnels where vehicles would move automatically. And they'd basically almost be like a train line that you could drive your car on. Does that make any sense at all, Rod? Oh, yeah, I, I do remember that. Probably. I do remember that. So he had an experimental tunnel out in Hawthorne, California, South Bay. And... Uh, Apparently, it's gone. Now, if vanishing a tunnel seems like, you know, what's half a hole? There's no such thing, actually. A half hole is still a hole. So I don't know how you vanish a tunnel. Where does it go? Above ground? I'm confused by that. But anyway, that boring, apparently the boring company is in trouble. And I thought that was a, one of Elon's cooler ideas, actually. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was kind of like, um, what's that movie with Sylvester Stallone and uh, Wesley Snipes? Uh, Demolition Man. It kind of reminded me of Demolition Man. It kind of reminds me of stuff on the Jetsons, too. The Jetsons seem to have that sort of technology. But apparently it's gone. And I don't know if that was a, uh, a byproduct of how much time the Twitter thing has taken. It's got to hurt. Elon's other businesses and also being so hated. But who is this talking? Do you know in the clip, Rod? This is a the question. Uh, the White House this is Biden asking, uh, being asked a question if Musk is a national security threat after he buys Twitter, after he bought Twitter. Right, and that just shows how much the media sucks. Even that question, but hit it. The Elon Musk clip. To U.S. national security, and should the U.S. and with the tools you have investigate his joint acquisition of Twitter with foreign governments, which include the Saudis? <laughs> I think that Elon Musk's 
cooperation and or technical relationships with other countries uh, is worthy of being looked at. Whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that it's worth, worth being looked at. Um, and uh, um, and uh, but that's all I'll say. Musk is a threat to U.S. national security and should. So now, by the way, Twitter, wasn't Saudi owned a few years ago? The Saudis, didn't they own a big percentage of it before Elon Musk was ever involved, Rod? Yeah, like you said, that just shows you how smart the media is. They didn't have any, you know, they didn't bring that up. But, you know, when Elon Musk talks about free speech and bringing free speech back or, you know, uh, or proposes bringing uh, free speech back, you know, now he's a national security threat and, you know, he must be stopped. Right. And really what, what it is is it's a threat to the narrative. But let's talk about organ seceding. Our guest, Matt McCaw, is on the line. So let's take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll talk to him about the greater Idaho movement. This is the backstory. We are back on the backstory. And on the radio, on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now online, Matt McCaw, a first-time guest. We've had people from the Great Idaho Movement on before, but welcome, Matt. Thank How do you. Good to be here. So, Matt, explain for people who might not know about it what the Greater Idaho Movement is, before you talk about the successes you've had recently. Explain what the movement is. Sure thing. So, so the Greater, Greater Idaho Movement is a movement that started about three years ago, and the whole core principle is self-determination and getting people matched up with government that they want and that matches their values. So... Uh, or I, we're based out here in Oregon, and Oregon is a very uh, liberal state. But Oregon is um, a very divided state. The west side of Oregon is uh, very urban and uh, very populated. Uh, the east side of Oregon is very rural, not heavily populated at all. And and the cultures of the two sides of the state are completely different. Uh, and so. What has ended up happening over time in the state of Oregon is as the population on the west side has grown and, and they've become more, the, the two cultures have drifted apart. And, and so the west side of Oregon is incredibly liberal and, and the east side is incredibly conservative. And what's happened over time is that the numbers on the west side they controlled the state at the state government government level and, and enforced and, and put policy on people in that they simply don't want voted for, and they and that doesn't match their value. So the Greater Idaho Movement came along and said it doesn't make any sense for the border between Oregon and Idaho to be where it is because Eastern Oregonians are very similar to Idahoans. Uh, they have the same geography, the climate, the same culture, values. Uh, they 
vote the same way. Uh, Eastern Oregonians should be part of Idaho, and having the border where it currently is doesn't make any sense. That border could move and should move to where the actual cultural divide in Oregon is, which is essentially the Cascade Mountain Range, and let those people in Eastern Oregon get state-level governance that they want and that matches their values from the state of Idaho. Now, Matt, you say Oregon's very liberal, but even the conservative parts of Oregon, people have to understand, I, I think, that, that the industry there is logging, right? And so even conservatives in Oregon, who I've known, are very much conservationists. They're very much in favor. Of their livelihood depends on the environment, but they don't like the liberal solutions for the environmental problems. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so absolutely. So, so Eastern Oregonians, rural Oregonians, uh, a lot of them make their living on natural resources, whether that's timber, whether that's ranching, whether that's grass seed, farming. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of rural land in, in Oregon, and a lot of people make their living that way. And absolutely, they, uh, you know, people that make their living off the land, you could argue, care the most about uh, conservation and the environment and moving forward because they're most closely tied to it. Um, but, but, the different the thing in Oregon is that the Willamette Valley, which is in the northwest part of the state, holds about seventy five percent of of the state's population, or roughly that. Um, so you have this this corridor uh, from Eugene to Portland that's very heavily populated. Uh, it's very very left leaning, and the rest of the state is more sparsely populated and very conservative. But whatever that corridor uh, decides politically gets forced on everybody else. And so you get these situations where you get policy. So, so I'll give you an example in Oregon. So Oregon, a couple of years ago, Oregon voters approved uh, a ballot measure. It's called Ballot Measure 110. And what it did was it legalized, the, it proposed to legalize possession of hard drugs. So this is something that in, in the northwest part of Oregon, it was a very popular idea. Uh, but in eastern Oregon, in rural Oregon, people did not want this this law to pass, and they felt that this that having this pass and, and legalizing drugs in this way was going to harm their communities. Um, if you look at the map of how counties voted in Eastern Oregon, counties overwhelmingly voted against this. I mean, it wasn't even close. It wasn't fifty one forty nine. They were voting against it. They're voting against it in the sixties and seventies. Um, but now, when you say hard drugs. As I understood it, man, correct me if I'm wrong, it was basically all drugs, fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, right? Yep. All, all those. All, all those all those things, exactly. And, and that's something that Eastern Oregonians did not want, overwhelmingly did not want. But because of, of having to share state governance with Western Oregon, they had these policies forced on them. And that's just one example. You could go down the line in, in almost every issue. People in Western Oregon feel differently about, believe differently, vote differently than people in Eastern Oregon. Um, and so Eastern Oregon has been a, a political minority in their own state for you know decades. And it doesn't make any sense, and there's there's no reason that that has to be so. You can move state borders. A border is just an arbitrary line. It's there to group peoples. It's there for the betterment of, of people groups. Uh, and if the state line is no longer making any sense, then it should be changed 
so that it can match up people to government that they actually want. And, 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 you know, and, and that in itself is a worthy goal. Uh, you know, that's a core principle in the United States is having government that you want, government by the people, for the people, the ability to change that government if you don't want it. Um, that in itself is a worthy goal, but it also, you know, we have such political polarization in this country, and, and people are always, you know, uh, talking about that. What are we going to do about this? What, what do we do about the polarization? And um, a solution to the polarization is to quit creating political tension in, in with situations like this. The political tension arises because you have two very different groups of people who don't believe the same on almost anything. And the way that we've set that up uh, at the state level is that one of those two groups is going to be in power and be forcing things on the other group that they don't want. That doesn't make any sense. Move the state border, get both those groups of people with government that they want and the polarization and the political tension disappears. And Matt, by the way, how did that drug legalization work out? What's been the impact on Oregon of legalizing all drugs, including crystal meth, cocaine, and heroin? What's been the effect? Well, it hasn't been good. Uh, so uh, we've seen crime increase, like a, like a lot of places. Um, you know, people especially people in Eastern Oregon are, are not happy with this policy. Again, they didn't want it. They thought it was going to harm their communities. They feel it's harming their communities, uh, but they're powerless to stop it that, because that's what the West side decided. Um, and, and like I said, like, this is, there are all sorts of instances. We have a ballot measure right now in our state um, that is, is, it's a gun, um, it's a gun control amendment uh, or ballot measure um that again, people in Eastern Oregon, in Eastern Oregon, people are gun owners. They uh, are outdoors people. They um, are very big on the Second Amendment. That's not true of people in Western Oregon per se. Um, that they want more limits on the Second Amendment, and and so we have this ballot measure right now that we're voting on, that we voted on on Tuesday. It looks like it's going to pass, and it's going to be the same situation. It's it's going to have 75, 80 percent of people in Eastern Oregon voted against it, don't want it think it harms their communities, but it's going to be forced on them because they are forced to share this, this state-level governance with uh, a group of people that live hundreds of miles away and are culturally completely different than them. Now, Matt, I'm curious about this. What is the Republican Party in Oregon think of this? Because a lot of times Republican parties are, I'll say, conservative in a not good sense, in the sense of stuck in the past, and anything that shakes up the political system, a lot of times Republicans, in my experience, are against party officials. I'm not talking voters. I'm talking party officials. So what's been the reaction, I, I don't know, in this case, of the Oregon Republican Party to what you're doing? Yeah, so, so I'll set it up first by just saying, like, so our approach has been that we have, have, we, our group had this idea in 2019. What if we move the border? And there's a mechanism for doing it through an interstate compact. So there's a, a legal process. It can be done. It has been done. Uh, so we thought this was a great idea and this would solve problems. This is a solution to, to something that, that has been a problem for a long time. But we, our, our approach was to go to voters directly. So we've been spending the last three years going county by county, 
uh, in, this, in eastern Oregon and southern Oregon and asking voters directly, do you want your elected leaders to look into moving the border? And, and what we're seeing is that when we put this option on the ballot and, and offer this solution to voters, voters are overwhelmingly saying, yes, we do want our elected leaders to look into this. This is the solution that we want to pursue. We have, so, so we've had great success. Uh, people love our idea. We've had a much harder time getting elected leaders on board. And, and you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I, I think partly, you know, when you are part of the Republican Party or part of the machinery of the Republican Party, we get, you know, people get a little bit stuck in this Democrat versus Republican thing. And, and they, they think, okay, we just need to take power back. And, and once we take power back, then we can be in charge and we can force our policies and we can turn things around. And, um, and, and so that's kind of the, the paradigm they look at things through. What we're coming along and saying is it doesn't make any sense for these two groups of people that are completely different, believe differently on almost anything. It doesn't make any sense for either of those groups to be making policy group or governing the other group. Let's peaceably separate. Let the Eastern counties uh, go join Idaho where there are, there's already a state government that they that matches their values. Um, and, and so we're kind of bringing this new, it, it's new, it's not something that's necessarily been done at the level that we're asking people to do it. Um, and so we've had a hard time getting elected leaders, uh, especially at the, at the state level, to get on board. That's starting to change, and, and we're making progress. So, so the process for, doing, for moving a border is that it, uh, it's through the interstate compact. Two states can move a border whenever they want for whatever reason they want. Like I mentioned, a border is just an imaginary line that's there to, to make people's lives better. It's, um, it's not something that was, you know, handed down on stone tablets. It, it's just, it can be moved. And um, so if two states, any two states, the two state legislatures can come together and say, we think that this border where it's at doesn't make any sense, and we think that moving it to here does make sense. If those two state legislatures agree, they form an interstate compact, they send it to the U.S. Congress, and if the U.S. Congress says yes, it's done. The border's moved. Um, so that's the process that we're trying to do. We've got legislators in Idaho ready to, to uh introduce legislation inviting Oregon to begin talks about this. We've got legislation in Oregon now ready to go, ready to be introduced in the next legislative session, inviting Idaho to begin talks. So we are getting there with the elected leaders. We already have the support of the people involved, uh, the voters, and we're getting there with the elected leaders. We're getting more leaders on board, and we're hopeful that we can get these two states talking next year about where it really makes sense to put that border. You know, one of the things I've always liked about the Greater Idaho Movement is it is citizen-based, as you point out. And also, I thought it was, ever since I heard about it, I was impressed by how serious you guys are. In other words, this is not a bunch of old guys at the diner bitching about stuff. And that happens a lot. People complain about things, but they don't do anything. And you have pursued this, all you, the people in the greater Idaho movement have pursued it seriously. And what have the citizens of the greater Idaho movement learned about 
the political process and learned about succeeding in the political process. Matt? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, the number one thing I hear when I talk to people about Greater Idaho and I travel around and, and I meet with people, they say two things. This would be amazing. Is this possible? Could this really happen? Um, you know, I, I think something that that maybe people have learned is that um, there is a status quo bias, the way things have been uh, or, or the way things always have to be. But that's not necessarily true. And when we present this option to people and say, no, we, that border can be changed. Borders have changed in the United States. The border changed between Oregon and Washington not that long ago, uh, relatively speaking. In 1958, Oregon and Washington came together and they moved the border uh, because there were some issues about the Columbia River and where the main channel was. Um, so the two states came together and said, okay, we're going to solidify this. This is where the border is going to be. Uh, borders can change. And, and so once voters realize that this actually can happen. This isn't just what you what you mentioned. This isn't just a bunch of guys sitting around a, a you know a pizza place, uh, you know, spouting off crazy ideas. There is a legal pathway for this to happen, and when people understand that, then they say absolutely yes. We want people to to move this forward. And and you know if if there's been um, like I said the the one thing that probably our, our supporters have learned the most is just because you have the support of the people doesn't mean it's it's just that easy to overcome the, 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 you know, the way things have always been. But we're getting there, and, and we're getting legislators. You know, when we started this, a lot of people just scoffed, and they were like, you know, whatever, dream on. Uh, you know, I, I had I had people involved in politics tell me that, like, this is a waste of time, you know, dream on. Um, those same people don't believe this is a waste of time anymore. We've had 11 counties in eastern Oregon where we've gone to voters uh, after this last election, we added two more counties, so 11. We're trying to move 15 full counties. 11 of those counties, voters have said, yes, we want this to move forward. As, as I mentioned, we've been to the state capitol in Boise. We have legislation ready to go for next January there. Same thing in Oregon. We're making progress. This is doable. It can happen. And, and the people now need to just continue to pressure their state lawmakers to make it happen. Well, in one sense, I would call this a kind of hyper-federalism. In other words, you're taking the principle of federalism, which is different states, you know, it act as almost a lab for democracy and policies. If this one state wants, uh, for instance, to legalize all drugs, let that state try it. And you're not saying you want, let, let, let them try it, and then we can look at the results. And uh, do you see what I mean about is a kind of a hyper federalism you're doing here, Absolutely. Matt? Absolutely. What we're trying to do is match people to government that they want. Uh, so, like I mentioned, you know, Oregon is incredibly divided, and we had a very close election. So, this election cycle, Oregon hasn't had a Republican governor for almost 40 years. Um, but this election cycle with the environment, there was a third party candidate. There, there was, we still don't know who our governor is. It's been two days, and, and some places have called it for the Democrat candidate, but, but other places are saying it's still too close to call. What we're saying is, it doesn't make any sense. Regardless, there's been political tension in Eastern Oregon because they've gotten government forced on them they didn't want for 30-plus years. But if, if the Republican Party takes power in Oregon, you're, you're going to see that same political tension just reversed. 
in Northwest Oregon is incredibly liberal and it's, it's very left leaning. And, and what we're saying is that's okay. It's okay for people to be different. Where the problem is, is when different people try to force their, their ideas and their policies on other people. Instead, redraw borders to match people to government they want. Let Western Oregon, which is a very liberal culture, let them have their very liberal government with their very liberal policies, and that's okay. But let Eastern Oregon, which is very conservative, get state-level governance that matches their values and is very conservative. And, and yeah. absolutely. Now, do, you have, do you have any idea how the liberals from Eugene to Portland actually view this? Are, do they agree with you? Do you have any way of telling? Well, so we have the same issue in Western Oregon that we have in Eastern Oregon, and that is the people, you know, your general public is not in, you know, drenched in politics all the time. They're not thinking red versus blue, you know, Democrat versus Republican all the time. There was polling done in January of this last year, or of this year, I'm sorry, of Northwest Oregon, which is the very left-leaning part of Oregon, and, and they, uh, Survey USA did a poll, and, and one of the questions that they asked was, do you think that Oregon should look into uh, changing the border? What, what that would, you know, what that would mean and what that would look like. 68% of people in Northwest Oregon said, yes, we should look into that. P- your everyday person understands it doesn't make any sense for, for two very different groups of people to, to try to be arguing over something. If, if people are not happy, if people see differently, you let them go and you let them do their own thing. And, and the public understands that. Um, the problem is, is that right now in Oregon, uh, the Democrat Party has had just a complete lock on control. They've had super majorities in the House. They've had the governor's mansion for almost 40 years. Um, so, so there's been no reason for um, legislators on that side of the aisle to, to even really pay attention to us. Um, uh, but the people understand, and, and I think that, that legislators, we can start making a compelling case, especially this year where, as I mentioned, we had very close races here in Oregon. We're not even sure yet who, which party is going to be in power at the state level. Um, I think that's going to open a lot of people's eyes that just like it doesn't make sense to have Portland, uh, dictating policy to Eastern Oregon, it's not going to make any sense for, for people with values of Eastern Oregon to be dictating policy to Portland uh, when they have a completely different value set and completely different problems. And I actually think it's to everybody's advantage because let's take the drug issue. For instance, if the western part of the state had what they have, which is no drug laws, basically, I understand the theory behind that. I'm a libertarian, so I understand in theory, but I wouldn't do it practically because I think you need some things in society set up before that could ever work. But I would be willing to let them try it out. And if you see a massive amount of OD deaths in the western part of the state and you don't have that in the eastern part, I think everybody could look at that. Everybody across the state could say, well, this doesn't seem to work or this does seem to work. Let's say you had more ODs in the eastern part of the state with heavy drug laws. You'd learn a lesson. Does it make sense, Matt? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. You know, 
Our core principle is matching people to government they want. It's okay for people to be different, but different people should be able to set up their own communities and governments the way that that they feel works best for their communities. That's what Greater Idaho is about, is, is matching up those people to those governments. Now, now, how much of, I, I, I love the Pacific Northwest. First off, I, I love that area. I love Oregon, I love Washington, and I spent time, uh, more time actually in places like Roseburg, downstate, than places like Portland, but I spent a good deal of time in Portland too. And I know taxes are a big issue there. What I mean by that, and I don't know which state is which, one of the states has no state income tax, but has uh, sales tax. And the other state has sales tax, but no income tax, if I said that right. So what people do is they go across the border to like go shopping, but they'll live where there's no income tax. So what's the tax situation between Oregon and Idaho? Is melding how taxes will be paid an issue for you, Matt? And correct anything I said that's wrong there. I'm sure I said something wrong. (laughs) No, so taxes, of course, is always an issue, and it's an issue for people. Um, So Idaho is a less taxed state than Oregon. Oregon uh, citizens pay more in taxes per capita than Idahoans do. So so moving into Idaho would lower people's tax bills. Uh, There's also considerably less services offered from Idaho than in Oregon. Um, You know, Again, there's no so Oregon is one of the few states that has no sales tax, and that's been something that they've tried to do that in Oregon for a long time, you know, multiple times, and it always gets rejected. People in Oregon don't like sales tax, and and that comes up. They're like, well, you realize if if you know you move into Idaho, uh, there's a sales tax. People won't like that. And and what I say to that is, we put this. We go directly to voters. We don't have to wonder about what voters think about our our idea. We go directly to voters and we say, would you prefer governance of Idaho to Oregon? And and what we find is those voters, when they look at the totality of all they'd be getting and all that they would be losing and and getting a new tax structure or what, you know, whatever, most Oregonians don't like sales tax, but when they look at the whole package, they're voting overwhelmingly in Eastern Oregon saying, we want what Idaho's got over what, what Oregon's got, and we want to, to see if we can make that happen. Um, that now, answer- we've, talked, we've talked on this show many times about the split between rural and urban areas, and it's a political split that I think is underestimated in this country. But I, I wonder also, Eugene's a big college town, and obviously Portland's got high tech. How much of this is an age gap between Eastern and Western Oregon, where you tend to have people who are in their 30s in the Western part of the state. And I think it's probably skews a little older in the, in in the, the East. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sure I don't have those you know statistics in front of me or those demographics, um, but I'm sure that plays into it. You know, what it really boils down to is just, you can look, at almost any issue, and people in Eastern Oregon are very like-minded about it and, and feel one way, and people in Western Oregon are very like-minded also. Um, so, so like I said, you take something like, well, just even like a presidential election. If you look at like the last presidential election, Eastern Oregon voted for Donald Trump 70-plus percent. Um, 
the west side of Oregon voted for Joe Biden 60 plus percent. It's not like um, there's these, you know, 5149 communities. It's really two separate cultures and, and two separate sets of values and, and worldviews. Um, it really and it's not that um, there's all this diversity of thought within those two cultures. They're, they're pretty like minded. They, the west half of Oregon or especially the northwest part of Oregon votes pretty similarly. And, and they ha- there is a culture there. And the east side of Oregon also votes very similarly. Um, and, and so it doesn't make sense for those two groups that are so different to, to be trying to vie to, to, you know, be in power over each other. And I assume both sides of the state would have Dutch Brothers. The coffee place would be in both, I assume, because I've been to Dutch Brothers. Oh. For anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, Dutch Brothers is one of my favorite coffee places, and there's a lot of them in Oregon. But they're also Dutch Brothers in Idaho. Yep. That's a little coffee nerd talk, now, Matt. Sorry. National, yep, Dutch Bros was a, was a Southern Oregon, uh, started in Southern Oregon, and now it's grown to, into a national uh, company. And uh, yeah, it, every, everybody in Oregon and Idaho loves Dutch Bros. I, I don't think they'd be going anywhere. And you, you know where else they have it, by the way, that's in the election news now? Arizona. Arizona, I've been to a Dutch Brothers in Arizona. And in Arizona, they have Dutch Brothers and in and out Burger. So two kind of quirky West Coast food brands. But I, I love Dutch Brothers. But uh, so what's the next step for you guys? So the next step we for us. We got about one minute. Okay, I'll try to make this quick then. So, so we've proven by going county by county, the people want this idea to move forward. So the next step for us is to get this into the hands of the, the actual decision makers, which are the two state legislatures. And so to that end, like I mentioned, we have uh, legislation and, and legislators ready to introduce that legislation in Idaho inviting Oregon to begin talks, vice versa. We have uh, legislation and legislators in Oregon ready to introduce legislation, inviting Idaho into talks. We proceed next year, get that legislation introduced, get the two states talking, get hearings going, because there's going to be details that need to be hashed out. Uh, But you could spend all of next year talking about where to put that border, how to grandfather things in, like licensing and and all that kind of stuff. that could happen throughout 2023. Come up with an interstate compact framework. We would, would love to see it get kicked back to voters and say, now that you see the details, do you still want to do this? If voters approve it, send it up to the U.S. Congress. And by 2024, you could have a border that actually makes sense between Idaho and Oregon rather than a border that's just a historical relic that's been there for 200 years. Well, Matt, great job. Thanks so much for the appearance. Good conversation with you. And who would get the ducks, by the way? Would that be both? Okay. So, Matt, go ducks. I think California could really use a movement like this. So, any California people who want to do something fun, work on secession and take it seriously. Let's take a break. We'll be right back after this break on the backstory.
And we are back on the Backstroid, the show that takes you to the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the Backstroid. So what did you think of that, Rod? Great guess, huh? Well, what do you think yeah, of no, the, uh, What do you think of the movements as a state in general? Is there any place in Pennsylvania that's conservative that could secede? Because I, I can't think of it. Maybe Amish country. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no. Um, you know, I think we should uh, cut off Pittsburgh and just uh, give it to Ohio. But, you know, that's just me, though. Right. Yeah, it, it, they're not. Well, is, it, is Pittsburgh worse than Philly? No, I'm just saying because uh, just as far as, you know, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia pretty much as far as uh, voting goes is what the major population and you know how they vote Democrat. And this, this is uh, as Pennsylvanians goes, that's the biggest issues right now is just uh, getting past this, you know, problems that the Democrats are proposing. And, and, you know, they're still counting votes, leave. So there's multiple states uh, uh, still count votes for state senator seats and things like that. And this hour guest, by the way, is Carter Laren. The great Carter Laren will be with us later in the hour. But I thought it was, and did you, have you ever been to a Dutch Brothers coffee place? No, I'm not a big, I'm not a coffee guy, Lee. Okay, well this is, it's partially coffee, it's almost a milkshake. It's a diabetes causing coffee, yeah. (laughs) That sounds good, though. <laughs> yeah, they're really good if you like sugar. They're very highly sugared. In fact, the coffee drinks used to be named after candy bars. Then I think they got sued by the candy bar company. But they used to be like Almond Joy and stuff like that. And that's accurate. They taste like candy bars. But they're also in little tiny houses that look, look like Dutch architecture. So they're cute and they're all over. And whenever I drive up to Oregon from California, whichever wife I was with at the time, we used to stop by Dutch Brothers. And that way we knew we were were in Oregon because the Dutch Brothers was there. So if you've not checked it out, check it out at some point. And let's take it to the boom, Rod. After I mention, you can call in 202-521-1320. Rod, take us out to the boom. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Okay, so uh, I guess the big story right now is still the election going on. They warned us that it would take two days. And then election night, I was kind of happy because a lot, lot of results seem to come in quick. But now we're two days past this. And like he said, like Matt was saying, in Oregon, they still don't know. And was, as we talked about before, in Arizona, we don't know. Now, make a prediction. I predict that Kerry Lake will actually not pull it off. I think they're setting it up so she is not going to win. That's not what I want to happen, but it's what I think will happen. At the end of the day, I think Kerry Lake will be an also-ran. Now, I'm depressed about that, and I don't think it's good, but that's what I predict. Rod, what say you? 
Yeah, no, it, that's a great way to put it, Lee, the difference between what you want and what you think. Um, I still think she's going to pull it out. Uh, I think she's, you know, it's going to be like a razor thin. And, you know, obviously they're going to be talking about that for the next four years. That's just what I really think uh, practically because, um, you know, if, if you look about even Oregon, I mean, just think about Oregon. Like he, like Matt just said, 40 years, Democratic governor, and they're still counting votes. The reason there's, you know, like like Tyler said earlier in the week, whenever you're, they're, they're this close, it's because they're trying to steal it. Um and that you know that's just my thoughts on it, and that's my opinion. It's the same thing in Arizona where Katie Hobbs, uh, you know, the lady who did want to debate, just like John Fetterman, they try to hide him. And uh, I, I didn't grab the clip, Lee. I'll have it for tomorrow. But now they say he should run for president. So <laughs> John Fetterman should run for president. And I agree, he should. I'm, I'm in favor of that. So, Sharif, uh, one sec. We'll get to you in one second. But think about this, Rod. If Carrie Lake loses, I think she's more of a threat to Democrats as an independent, not she's free. She is does not have the job of governing of governing. So if Carrie Lake is free and she's perceived by Republicans as someone who is robbed from their seat, I think Carrie Lake is more. What's that? If she loses, I think she'll go for the VP with Trump. Right. And I would say she's more dangerous to the Democrats, independent. And a lot of Republicans would feel like she's owed something because she was ripped off, basically. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, 100%. I agree with that, Lee, if she does lose. And I think immediately if she does lose, I think, you know, she's a savvy, she's a savvy woman. She left the media and she ran for politics and she's very popular in Arizona versus Katie Hobbs, who's trying to hide like uh, Joe Biden and John Fetterman. Um, I think she'll go, I think she'll go for the VP job. And I think uh, that would make uh, Trump more confident to announce his run. I've said that before about there's a saying, you probably heard it, it's cliche. Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And I've said before, if the Democrats force Trump to not run, and you saw they're looking into that, they clearly don't want to let Trump run. If they stop Trump from running, and it forces basically Ron DeSantis into the lead, does that make sense? If Ron DeSantis is forced to be nominee by the Democrats. I think that is the Democrats' worst nightmare because Ron DeSantis will mop the floor, whereas Trump, I don't think, will mop the floor. I think Trump would win, but a lot of people really hate Trump and will vote for no other reason than to vote against him. Do you agree with me? Yeah, if they if they if they force that, yeah, I think I think that that's exactly what's going to happen. And so you know. A Ron DeSantis, Carrie Lake, president, vice presidential nominee, if she loses and then she becomes the VP for DeSantis, how do you think that ticket would, would do? DeSantis, Lake. Mm, I think I think it would do good. You know, I think it would do good, you know, especially again, like you said, if, we, if somehow they force Trump not to run or, you know, force him unable to run, then, yeah, I think I think that would uh I think that would look good, DeSantis Lake. I can't think of anybody else who he can run with right now. Yeah, and I think a lot of the people who, who hardcore vote against it, you know, a lot of Democrats will vote Democrat because that's what they do. But I don't think there's the, it's tough to match the hatred, the pure hate 
that people feel for Trump. The people who don't like him really don't like him. Am I correct on that, Rod? Yeah, but, they, you know, um, whenever you ask people, what, what what did Trump do for you to uh, hate him? It was he's a racist. So I'm like, OK, what's the what's the number? What's the number one racist thing Trump's ever done as president or before? And, you know, you just you just make them agitated because they can't come up with anything. So Charlottesville, I'm like, well, he didn't call in. You know, he didn't do Charlottesville. He wasn't there or anything like that. Or that's like January 6th or something like that. But January 6th had nothing to do with race. No. Yeah, that's a good point. So 202-521-1320. Command Central, who did you say? Tarif, and then did you say someone? Okay, thank you. So, Tarif, in Louisiana, what's on your mind? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free doing science. I got three comments. My first comment is this. I'm now, I am now verified on Twitter. Paid my little $8. I'm still being shadow banned. My tweet's still being pushed down. I hopefully, hopefully they fix it soon What everybody else still is maybe still experiencing it. I guess because I'm a whistleblower, and what I post is very important. Um... Second comment is this: When the uh, GOP run with Trump run again, what they have to pay attention to is the libertarians. They have to pay attention to. I know I said this yesterday, but they have to pay attention to the Green Party. They're going. They have to help the Green Party get on the ballot in the different states that they need. If they don't pay attention to that, that's going to hurt them come up in 2024. Whether it's Trump, DeSantis, or Trump, Carrie Lake, or whoever, they need to pay attention to that and help the Green Party get on that. Uh, on those um, ballots, that's going to take some of the bleed-off vote, vote from the um, Democrats. The same thing, how the uh, Libertarians bleeding off is taking votes from the uh, Republicans. The same thing with the uh, the Green Party can do with the Democrats. My last comment is this: with Trump, the Santos, what what they have to do with the coming up election in Georgia, the runoff between Walker and, and Walnut, they have to go down there and support him. They have to run commercials down there. Dealing with like job improvements, infrastructure, things like that, to put in that black vote, especially the male black vote, because uh, how the black men was you know basically talked down to in a condescending, patronizing way by Stacey Adams, they can build on that and try to carry over to uh, Walker. So they have to come up with commercials, come up with like a jobs program. They have to do something to get that vote. If not, you know, we might lose. You know, so yeah, that's my my opinion. They have to work for the uh, they have to work with the uh, libertarians too. That's it. So so great culture. I I don't think so. Let me put it like this, Rod. I would like to see guys like Matt, you know, and the Greater Idaho Movement. And what what I mean, guys like him. I mean people who take the political process seriously. I'd like to see them take over the Republican Party in different states. I think, let me put it like this, in the race between Herschel Walker and Warnock, why do you think anyone would vote for Warnock? He doesn't have, he doesn't, I'm serious too. I think the people who vote for Warnock are the people who are just used to going to the booth and pulling the D lever. People who mindlessly vote Democratic. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, I agree with that, Lee. You know, he's uh, he took over Martin Luther King's old church, so that you know that's a 
that's another thing that people just look at, things like that. He's a pastor, but he's a pastor who's uh, for abort- abortion with no limits. He's a pastor who's for, uh, you know, sexualization of, of, ch- of child's education. Uh, and, he, and he's openly says these things. So I don't know what kind of congregation goes and uh, sits there and listens to that. Um, and yeah, I think people just mindlessly, you know, they look at her and LaShorsha Walker and they connect them to Trump. Uh, and, you know, Trump's the, the, the evil white man and Biden's the, the good, you know, well, he's the neutral, you know, he's neutral. I guess some people look at him and, and, and as far as voters. And um, yeah, I, I would say that Herschel Walker is also, he's, you know, he's, he's kind of looks, he looks like an alpha male. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's built, he's, he's well built, he still takes care of himself. And I think some, some, you know, women and men resent that. Uh, I, you know, I, I see the, uh, a split. I, I saw the demographics the other day as far as Democrats and Republicans. And uh, there was a lot of uh, single women uh, Democrat voters versus Republican single women. So, you know, I, I don't know what, how they will get Herschel Walker to beat Warnock. I think they need to go negative on Warnock. I think they need to find some scandal because I think that's the only thing that's going to assure victory down there. But I don't know what that would be. Does that make sense? And what you're alluding to is that Herschel Walker, in an age where masculinity is under attack, would you agree that masculinity, it's referred to as toxic masculinity? Right. It's a yeah. It's an attack on it's an attack on men, especially young, especially young boys. Lead. Uh, you know, you have you go to you know, let's say you have a hyper kid in, in class or something. They'll say, well, you know, let's just give him some type of pill. He's a he's a, he's got toxic masculinity because he's bullying his classmates or he's picking on them. You know, it's just a part of growing up. It happens, but they have a, a definition of it. But there's no there's no equal toxic femininity. There's no that doesn't even exist. Yeah. No. Exactly right. Although, you know, some of us been through a divorce might disagree, but I'll leave it there, Rod. So let's go to calls, 202-521-1320. Jonathan, what's on your mind? Yeah, you referred uh, earlier that they, those people that are doing the counting are setting, uh, basically you're trying to say that they're not people from both sides that are doing the counting in Arizona, when the person in Arizona has already said that it will be a delay in the counting of the voting. They put out PBS public service announcements at least seven times. So what are you implying? You said they, they are going to set something up, or what, what did you say? What, who said it, Rod or me? No, no, you said it. You said they. Who, who, are the, who is they? I assume, I don't know, the Democrats. You're saying the Democrats are the ones that are, are counting the ballots over Kerry Lake versus uh-huh. No, I don't think I said much about that. Rod, did I say much about that? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I've, I've, Katie Hobbs is, is the Secretary of State, so she's in charge of the elections. I know I've said that, so yeah. That's what, that's what my recollection, Jonathan, because I don't really have an opinion on that. <laughs> what do you mean? You, you just had an opinion like seven minutes ago. No, no, I really, I don't think I said that. What I think is they're doing things that would cause people to question it. But I actually make a play all the time for realistic politics. And I'll tell you something else about Arizona. I don't feel sympathy for them. It's like the people of Pennsylvania. The people of Arizona are going to get what they deserve. And if they elect another completely 
useless Democrat who's going to let what happens at the border. I don't feel bad for people of Arizona because they also elected Jonathan, uh, forgive me, you're Jonathan, John McCain, John McCain and Jeff Flake. And Jeff Flake and John McCain were horrible on immigration. So I feel no sympathy for Arizona. And I actually, I've said what's going on. There are questions about it. But Rod, am I, I, have I been adamant saying there's cheating going on in Arizona? I don't remember saying anything like that. Uh, No, you don't, you know, you've been working on this a long time as far as, uh, you know, Politics, you you kind of go the other way as far as uh, fixing the elections, you know. But me myself, I you know, I, my opinion of it is, yeah, I think you know, obviously we have, we played the clip of Harmy Dillon and the machines and the printing out the ballots and all things like that. So it's just, you know, there's already there's already funny stuff going on. If you say there's not, then I don't know what to tell you. So Jonathan, what say you? Uh, uh, well, I mean, if you went back to the tape, you 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 would hear what you implied. You you were implying that. Democrats are in charge of the voting, and they. Okay, who's the Secretary of State? Is can we agree factually that the woman who's Secretary of State is the Democrat who's running for office, also, and she's a Democrat? Would you agree with that? So do you, so. Would you agree, hey, Rod? Would, would you, you agree that the Secretary of State is a Democrat? Yeah, I would agree with. Okay, she is. So, do you agree that she sat down and handpicked every person that applied for that position? Is that what you're telling me? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you, you said that I implied the Democrats were in charge of the process. And I'm saying factually, the Democrat who's running for office is the Secretary of State of Arizona and therefore tasked with the job of overseeing elections. You don't see anything weird about that? She's running for a position. Who? <laughs> All right, let, 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 let's switch the story. So, are you so guys? You, so, so you don't see anything worried about that? Yeah. She's running for something, who, but she's already in charge. So, what are you saying? Okay, you run for a position. What, what I'm saying is, if we were to hold a vote, are oh, you saying she's a little use herself? A little club, and I was running for a position. I'm running for class president. Should I also be the person who counts the votes? Okay. Well, anyway, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll put well, the No, so, so should they be or not? Should the person who's running for an office be the person in charge of the election? Or do you find that creates the appearance of impropriety? It is, okay, so you're, you're saying she should recuse herself. Let's just get to the point. Well, I, 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 Rod said that. Well, I didn't say that. But anyway, this, but, is, listen, this, is a, this is supposed to be a political show. And you guys are talking about why people would vote for Warnock over Herschel Walker, who probably couldn't pass a sixth grade civics class. Now, why do you say that? Tell, tell us why you say that. And also, how much science is needed to be a senator? Is he going to be setting up a lab over on his part of the Senate floor? Is he bringing test tubes with him? What, what, what? Quantum physics experiments do senators do? Let's talk about the geniuses. Do you think Adam Schiff is a science genius, a potential Nobel Prize winner? What's this? I I don't I don't know. If also, by the way, why do you say that? Why would you say 
Oh, oh, he's uh, he's a masculine man, and uh, uh, yeah, he's been working out. And uh, oh, yeah, that what's that going to do for the people of, of Georgia? So the man skated through his whole his whole career in football. He can't even write it. Yeah, come on. The, 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 you, 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 wait, wait, keep, no, keep, keep going with that. Keep going. Let's not keep the insults vague here, Jonathan. Be specific. Be specific. Say he's a stupid black guy. Say it. Come on. Say it. Just say he's an ignorant black guy. I say, Use the N-word. I'll say he's a football player who's been tutored his entire career. He hasn't done a, 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 a day of schoolwork or homework. He's been pushed through. He's a prodigy. Everybody no, 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 just don't wait. You're saying he has not done one day of schoolwork, Rod. Oh, when you're a prodigy, of his, if you know, the, do you know more about Herschel Walker's career than I do? How did he get away with not doing one day of schoolwork? And do you hear what I'm hearing? It's vaguely, you know, because he's a black football player. I think he's being insulted on that basis. Um, Does, uh, if you do were, you hear what I'm? Do you hear what I'm hearing, Rod? Can I talk? Can I? Can I talk? Can I talk? Hey, Rod, can I talk? I want to hear what. No, go ahead, Lee. Let's finish, let Jonathan. I think he's. Uh, let's yeah. give him some more rope. Let's give him some more rope. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So Good let's, way. Let's, so let's go back. Okay. So let's go back to the 1980s. We're talking college football in Georgia. If you were 100 pounds, if you're six years old and you're already 100 pounds heavier than the kid next to you, you you've already been cre- recruited. Your career. They didn't even have grade systems or anything. The guy can't even put. <laughs> No, that's, that's come on. You, you talked. You went from college to six years. That's, look, I mean, of course, it does football players, especially back then, get some type of passes in school? Yeah, that's known. It's been documented. But to say he's done zero schoolwork or he's, or he's just some blatant idiot, um, I mean. Also, he, by the way, there were plenty of fat six-year-olds who just like cake. They had nothing to do with any future athletic career. It's not a guarantee that if you're a fat six-year-old, you're going to be a football player. Right, Rod? Yeah, no, no, no. Especially just you just be considered overweight or something like that, obese child. But no, this is so no, this is just, he's just we're just talking about a whole completely different things in one conversation. You played college ball, Rod. How much does a guy who plays pro ball, how much work, how much effort is that? Are, well, are there a lot of natural talents? I mean, natural talent plays a factor. Undoubtedly, but how much work do they go through? How much effort staying in and doing things that other people don't do, Rod? No, for sure, Lee. You can't just go out there and put on some pads and just play football. You got to do a lot of studying. Even though Herschel Walker is uh, naturally gifted, you, I mean, just look at him. He's stayed in shape now into his 50s, so he's put a lot of work into himself and into his career. You can't, again, you just can't step on the field and get the, the ball handed to you. You got to do a lot of studying. You got to know what the defense is doing. You got to know what the offense is doing. And My father was a, was a golf pro, and he used to tell me, he said, the people you're seeing that are pros, and I'll bring up Michael Jordan in a second. Uh, the people that you're seeing that are pros, he said they were hitting 10 buckets of balls a day. My dad would hit like 10 buckets of balls a day. And that's a lot of, if nothing else, time. You're spending time on the driving range. And when Michael Jordan, remember when Michael Jordan was saying he was going to become a pro golfer? Remember that period when Jordan was playing baseball and stuff? And he said, yeah, pro baseball player. Right. My dad said, no way. And I said, what do you mean? 
He's extraordinarily talented. And he said, it doesn't matter. Michael Jordan, at that time, the best basketball player ever. I think everyone would agree. At that time, he was the best. But he said, but he spent his time practicing basketball. So while he's a tremendous athlete, that does not translate to another sport automatically, right? And we've seen that, I think, with Herschel Walker, correct? Well, actually, Herschel Walker's an outlier. Lee, he obviously devoted all his time to football. And uh, I think about six, seven years ago, he <laughs> he took up MMA for a couple months and he fought two professional fights in one. He beat two professional fighters. So that tells you how talented he is. And yeah. so, But I, I would say also because he also realized the work he had to put in and put in the work. Does that make sense? He did not skate by on his natural athletic ability and say, I'm not going to work out. I'm not going to hit the heavy bag. I'm not going to, you know, train. Does that make sense, Rod? I think I'm not an athlete, but when I see people insult athletes, they do not have any idea the work that athletes put in. Is that fair to say, Rod? Oh, yeah, especially during Herschel Walker's time where you could get, you know, you can get really maimed in football. Um, you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, in his late 40s to take up MMA and beat up younger guys in their late 20s, uh, it was just, you know, amazing. You know, just honestly amazing that a guy could just pick up a sport and do good at it. And Jonathan was dropping statements like Herschel Walker never attended school a day in his life. When you have to imply lies, Herschel Walker, I'm sure, attended a day of school. I'm pretty sure, Rod. Would we have caught that if he'd never been to school ever? Yeah, no, for sure. He went to he went to the University of Georgia and was a legend there. And you got to do some type of studying and some type of schoolwork. You don't get passed, uh, and you don't get passes in every class or people who do work for you. You got to do some schoolwork. There's nobody who just shows up and doesn't do anything and play sports in college. It doesn't work that way. But you said Carter's on. Okay, so let's go to a break, Rod. We've been, but great great call, Jonathan. Thanks for the call. You know, we want people to be able to express their opinions, but Rod and I are going to push back. And I don't like words being put into my mouth because I'm not overly concerned about election cheating, and I never have been. So let's take a break. And when we come back, the great Carter Laren is joining us on The Backstory. back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. We're joined now by our frequent Thursday guest co-host, the great Carter Laren from Unsafe Space. Hey Carter, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Lee. How are you? I'm good. So we, we had an interesting debate with Jonathan, who was saying things about Herschel Walker, like He'd never attended a day of school. And obviously, that's absurd. And I do, one thing, let me, you know, here's a topic I want to talk to you about, Carter. Let's do, I'll call this topic in defense of elitism. Because I think 
And I'm critical of elitism, but I like meritocracy. Do you see what I'm getting at? Where I'm headed? Absolutely. Yes, I'm, I'm curious to see what your questions will be, but yes. So the elitism that I don't like is a non-meritocracy-based elitism, where someone, either because their father or, you know, special, like we had the case in the Supreme Court recently about college admissions. And a lot of times people are getting into college because they're black and not getting in because they're Asian. If a black person and an Asian person had the same test scores, they socially rank those. And a black person, and they've proven, they've shown this. Through affirmative action, a black person with the same test scores as a white person or an Asian person will get in. And I actually don't think that works out well for anybody. If you're black, it doesn't work out because plenty of black people do well enough on tests. But I think it paints them with uh, the idea that maybe they got in because of affirmative action. You saw that ruling, right? And it's before the Supreme Court right now. But what say you, Carter? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, and Harvard has admitted as much. I think the the argument from the universities is, yes, we factor race in, and that's because we're trying to make up for some sort of uh, inherent bias. Of course, that's a, a completely irrational, unscientific approach, uh, and it's based on the premise that any disparity in outcome is necessarily evidence of racism, which is Ibram X. Kendi's uh, entire point, although uh, you're not allowed to apply it to things that uh, that favor protected classes like the NBA. You're not allowed to say, hey, is there racism because the, the players are black, uh, most of them. So, uh, yeah, it's based on that kind of faulty cart before the horse kind of logic where you, you, you decide, well, any disparity in outcome is necessarily evidence of racism. And Harvard's argument is, well, because there's a disparity in attendees uh, and it doesn't accurate, accurately reflect the overall proportions in population, we need to uh, make it more difficult for Chinese students to get in and, and less difficult for black students to get in, and we're going to do that under the banner of uh, this vague notion that diversity has some sort of spiritual value to the students that attend. Right. And and, and we were talking about Herschel Walker with Jonathan, and but it, it applies equally to Elon Musk. I think a lot of times people underestimate the amount of effort, work, and intelligence that it requires to be successful in any field. Do you, I, I'm not a sports fan, but I respect the work and effort that was required to become an NFL player or a major league baseball player or a pro golfer or anything like that. There's, and I think a lot of times people act like, oh, Elon Musk, he didn't do anything. I see people say that. Elon Musk didn't do anything. And that really fundamentally misunderstands what Elon Musk did. What say you? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm not a professional athlete, obviously, either. I have known some high-level athletes, and if you see how they they behave, um, I mean, the, the, the way, their lifestyle revolves around 
being the best athletically. And that means eating, working out. I mean, everything they do. And it's not, uh, it's not something that you just fall into. You don't just get to be a star athlete. You work your butt off for that. And you make a tremendous amount of sacrifices along the way. Uh, and I think just that, uh, dedication and effort deserves a lot of respect. But I, as someone who has been an entrepreneur, what bothers me even more is the um, and not just dismissal of what people like Elon Musk do, or I'll even say someone I don't really particularly like, like Mark Zuckerberg. I may, I may not like the guy, but the amount of work and ingenuity and brilliance required to do what he did is undeniable. You can say simultaneously that you disagree with his decisions uh, politically or even decisions running the comp company without belittling the absolute brilliance, dedication, risk, and effort it took to do what he did. And, you know, I most of the people who make who level those criticisms or who dismiss people like Elon Musk, uh, they haven't run so much as a banana stand in their whole life. They have no idea what they're talking about. They've never tried to start a business. Uh, and they're just speaking out of sheer ignorance. And it 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 really shakes me to the core. I really hate it. It gets under my no. skin, Lee. Because as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things that entrepreneurs do is they put together a team of people. So when people say Elon Musk didn't do that, it, it was people, employees who did that. Well, if you've ever tried to put together a team of people, it's incredibly difficult. It's not just a matter of finding talented people. It's finding talented people who can work with each other. Right, Carr? who can work with each other, who are on the same page, whom you can manage. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, and, and when you're a startup, uh, which Elon has done, uh, often you have to convince people on a vision, which you know, can sound crazy sometimes it's, it's a lot of work. And someone like Elon isn't just a manager of people. The guy also has technical prowess. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that it uh, – I think it's actually a serious problem in the long-term health of our society to not respect and admire the risk that founders take because – I mean you probably know this, Lee. Look, if you if you try and found a company, the likely outcome isn't that you turn into Zuckerberg. It's that you go bankrupt and get divorced. I mean that's the stuff – that's the kind of stuff you're putting on the line uh, to, to dedicate your your time and effort to something. And and for for ignorant fools to come along and disrespect it uh, and belittle the work uh, is just it's unconscionable. And it's and it's a reason why I think <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I think we will ultimately fail uh, economically as a country if we don't change that attitude, uh, because other countries like China don't have that attitude towards successful entrepreneurs. And also, you know, you, you brought up a lot of stuff that's important there. But one thing also is that people not realizing what it takes is because they've never done it themselves. And they look at people, a good athlete does not look like he's putting in a lot of effort. He's graceful. He makes it look like he was born to do that. But th that grace, it's like a brilliant musician. Any musician who plays brilliantly, right, 
There was a lot of practice, a lot of missed notes, a lot of stuff you don't see behind the scenes. Right, Carter? Golf's a prime example. a ball and it goes forward and lands near something. That seems pretty easy. I'm sure I could do that. But then if you actually try and do it, it turns out you've got to dedicate tens of thousands of hours of your time and life to perfecting that, to do it as gracefully and easily uh, as he appears to. No, no, that's a good point. And that's why even Donald Trump, you know, one of the common criticisms by the many people who hate Donald Trump is that, well, his father gave him money and his father was a millionaire, but Trump is a billionaire. And going up that level, just because you you have a million dollars, I mean, does not mean that you're going to make money with it. It's just as likely you'll go bankrupt. You know, they used to yeah, be I mean, I people who shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves in two generations. But go ahead, Carter. No, that's a perfect phrase. It's a perfect phrase, Lee. And, and you know, people who've never had a million dollars don't realize how easy it is to go from, you know, one million to zero. Uh, it, it can happen very easily, especially if you decide to uh, – risk that capital on a business. I mean, it's not hard to lose millions of dollars trying to start a business. Uh, it's very easy. So, and, and even people that win the lottery and don't try and start businesses often manage uh, within a very short period of time to blow their entire earnings and end up destitute again. So uh, it, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not a given that because dad gives you a million dollars, you end up with a billion dollar empire. And people might, you know, argue over exactly how much Donald Trump's empire is worth. I don't know, but it's not its not a million dollars. It's orders of magnitude more, that's for sure. And ironically, for someone who's critical, I am, of uh, Trump's ability to hire people. At the Trump Hotel in Washington, I've got to say, he had exceptional staff. Whoever was doing the hiring there was really good because they were exceptional people. You know, and so sometimes the skill set does not transfer. And I think much of Trump's skills did not transfer to the presidency. What do you make of the election, Carter? And do you blame Donald Trump for the lack of red wave that materialized? Uh, Well, first, I do agree with you. I think a lot of his skills just didn't transfer. Running a business and uh, being a politician are two different things. I, you know, do I blame Trump? Not, not really. No. I mean, obviously I don't like some of the picks like Oz, I think was a disaster. Uh, But uh, at the same time, I I think, you know, if you look at this, yeah, there wasn't a red wave. Um, And, and actually the Democrats did quite well. I mean, considering it was a midterm election, they've, they've done quite well. Uh, But, but, you kind of are seeing just the crystallization of what we already know. Uh, other than a few races like DeSantis, this is split down 50-50. I mean, this, these races are they, – they seem to me – I'm not an expert. I'm just – you know, I've been looking at some of these things. The, a lot of these races, Lee, just seem really tight. What do you think? Well, you know, a number of them did seem tighter, tighter than I thought they would be. But, you know, I think to some extent the media – over the media, over I, I don't think I ever said red, red wave. I could be wrong, 
We could play back tape, and I said it a few times. But I didn't think, I don't need a red wave here. I just need the the Republicans to take over the House. That's all I need. Right. Does that make sense, Carter? Which, which, yeah, I mean, look, you're talking to a guy who spent, uh, you know, I used to, I spent, I think, a large part of my life just voting for gridlock uh, because, uh, as a as a libertarian kind of guy, I, I figured if the government does nothing, that's better than whatever either party is going to do, because um, they ne- they never seem to move in the right direction. So nothing is is uh, it's not progress, but it doesn't make things worse. So uh, gridlock would be great if there was a house that could block uh, some of the the plans of Democrats. Uh, I think that would be awesome. I think it'd probably be better if you had the House and the Senate. Red, while you've got a Democrat president, then you could get even better gridlock. But still, it's uh, you know, it's not a it's not a bad situation. But it is. I think the Democrats are going to walk away saying they won. Like this was good for them, considering, again, considering it's a midterm. No, I, I agree, and I brought up that could hurt the Democrats in twenty twenty four because I think they will be somewhat arrogant, uh, which describes. A lot of what I'm seeing from the Democrats, I don't think the Democrats, I'm seeing a shift in people's attitudes. And I think this takes us further down the road. But I think people are seeing a lot of insane stuff from the Democrats they're not used to. I'm talking about like the trans issues and a lot of the woke stuff. And I don't expect it to change in four years. People who were woke. The idea that they'd change their opinions in one election cycle was unlikely to me. Does that make sense, Carter? Yeah, and I think you also have to understand that we are the, the Democrats. Their 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 enemy here is kind of a broken enemy. I mean, the Republican Party is at odds with itself right now. Uh, so it, this is not a strong party. Uh, the Democrats, you know, yes, they. They they were kind of taken over by radical leftism, but that was mostly a success. I mean, not every Democrat is completely on board with wokeism, but they will kowtow to wokeism. And there's not a lot of, uh, you know, there's not a, a big question about what the direction of the Democratic Party will be. It is woke. That's the direction. Uh, but in the Republican side, you know, you, you do have a lot of you got the Marco Rubios uh, and then you've got. Uh, the Ron DeSantis, that's that's in one state where I think there's you, you see right there two different branches of the same party kind of at odds with one another. And it's not clear which way the Republicans will go. Uh, and, and frankly, I hope and I know Trump's planning to run. I really hope he doesn't, because um, I think he he failed to deliver. And it, I think his presence in the party right now just continues to delay uh a, a a renewal of some sort or or a transformation uh you know towards some other direction right now it's just he's so hated that you know if he endorses somebody there's there's an entire part of the party that's just going to be against it anyway uh even if they would have normally liked that person so I, I don't think that he's actually helping the republicans right now now so occasionally you know we get into heavy conversations philosophical conversations carter And I have one such conversation for you now. I was reading uh, about uh, Jung, C.G. Jung, the great, uh, one of the founders of modern psychotherapy. 
And Jung talked about how people need to avoid addictions. And he was talking to live a happy, successful life. People need to avoid addictions. And obvious ones would be, you know, drugs or alcohol. But interestingly enough, he listed as an addiction ideology. Jung thought that becoming addicted to ideology was a danger for people. So what you view as the role of ideology as opposed to what I'll call practical reality, just in general, go wherever you want to with that car. Well, um, was it Jung? Jung was the one who said ideas don't have you or you don't have an idea. An idea has you. Was that Jung or was that someone else? I don't, I don't recall. I'm not familiar with that, but that, that but that's a, would be Jungian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I think maybe you won't like this answer. I am. I, I kind of usually punt when people say the word ideology. Uh, I, I immediately kind of pause because I'm not. I, at the risk of sounding stupid, I don't know what they mean, because I hear ideology being used to mean um, beliefs that are completely out of touch with uh, reality and with where you you cling to them with blinders on and you do not uh, change your um, premises or conclusions at all based on reality. But I also hear ideology applied to principles, uh, principles that uh, are moral principles that ought to be followed uh, and actually do have uh, real practical ties to reality in the long run. So, uh, you know, I you can you can accuse someone I could accuse of uh, of being an ideologue if I say, well, the initiation of the use of force is wrong in all cases, right? Well, that's just you know you got to let go of that sometimes. That's too ideological. But similarly, a Marxist gets accused correctly of being an ideologue by refusing to notice the hundred million dead last century and saying we should try again because it's a great idea. So I'm not actually sure what ideology means in this sense. I, and what did he mean? And what do you mean? Well, I think what ideology means, without trying to, I'll describe it and not try to define it. Uh, Ideology, I would say you described it accurately, the way people mean it. For instance, a lot of the woke stuff, you, you, in theory, you know, stopping people from bullying other people is a good idea. But the way they define bullying is so broad that becomes not a good idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I guess I guess you can guess this part of my answer then as as someone who's heavily influenced by objectivism. Uh, look, I, I think that the basic problem with a lot of these, uh, w- w- we can call them ideologies or we can even just call them you know sets of ideas that people hold, is they are rarely tied to reality. They're floating abstractions. There's, they're not integrated into a conceptual hierarchy based on uh, you know, actual principles that relate to the world. And so they're self-contradictory. And as a result, uh, clinging to them without really understanding them, that's what's going on here, right? You can't cling to leftism and fully grasp it. Because if you fully grasped it, you would have to reject it as self-contradictory and contradictory with reality. So, uh, you know, clinging to ideology in that way absolutely is is dangerous and and bad. But I don't think 
from what I can tell, we're not on a path of deep introspection and uh, openness to ideas, right? We are we are crystallizing our conclusions and starting to view the world as in a very uh, Manichaean way. It's it's either this way or that way. It's very black or white. Uh, nuance is the enemy of both parties right now, uh, and. As a result, I don't see this getting better. I mean, the only way that you eventually get along with someone is if you at least start with some basic agreement, for example, on epistemology and metaphysics. So, Lee, if you and I sit down and say, okay, well, we agree that A is A and we agree that reason is the, is, is the means by which uh, we judge reality correspondence and we're going to have a conversation and, you know, we could start out disagreeing, but eventually over time we'll, we'll draw closer and closer to agreement. But if we start out and, you know, and I say we're actually living in a simulation and my feelings are valid uh, modes of understanding the world and their arguments in and of themselves and and you <laughs> say the opposite, you cling to reason, uh, we're never going to agree. We're always going to be at odds with one another. And the divide between us is just going to grow deeper and deeper over time. So th this is why you can't have – if you view the part of culture as as the fundamental values, the fundamental philosophy with respect to ethics and metaphysics and epistemology, if that's part of a culture, this is why you can't have a fractured culture. You can't have a community, any community that survives with a fractured culture at that level. You can disagree about favorite colors and sports teams and foods and art, but you can't disagree about epistemology. And, and that's the disagreement we have. We have people who honestly believe in uh, the kind of critical theorist and or postmodernist or some mix of the two epistemologies, which are absolutely insane. And we have people who believe that reason is the way to understand the world. And, you know, both sides use the word reason all the time. But, uh, you know, that's this is not this is not a recipe for coming together and finding compromise and common ground. This is a recipe for deeper and deeper divide until someone is, you know, stood up against the wall and shot. Not to now, give you too the, much of a black pill today. Now, in the first hour, we talked to Matt McCaw from the Greater Idaho Movement. And there are people who are organizing politically and succeeding in having a number of counties in rural Oregon split from the state and say that they're going to become part of Idaho. Now, you're a Californian. Do you think California needs that and down along the Central Valley? And so L.A. and San Francisco and maybe San Diego, maybe go to one East California and then let's say Stockton and uh, Bakersfield and parts west go somewhere else. What say you, Carter? Well, I think that would be a positive move for both sides. I mean, I think both sides would actually like it. There, there have been uh, movements. I mean, also Northern California, uh, Jefferson uh, is the proposed n name <laughs> of that area. They've been pushing for, I think, decades at this point to to secede from California and either. And, and you're, um, you're talking far Northern California, just so people know. You're talking the part at the top yes. of, of, of way above San Francisco, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Hours, hours, like hours north of San Francisco. Uh, you know, um, you know, right, right at the northern end of California, there tends to be that 
it, it, it's a more rural area, and it tends to be what I would describe as generally more libertarian-esque. Uh, the problem is the rest of California doesn't want to let it go because a lot of water comes <laughs> from there. So they have the resources. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be good for I, – I think that's actually a nice peaceful way to start separating because if we don't separate peacefully – it will happen violently and or it won't happen at all. And and there will be uh, a pretty severe uh, disharmony within the U.S., which I don't think can can really be good because likely so, violence results as well. So, Carter, so. let me get your take on this issue because Matt brought up the issue in Oregon that Portland and Eugene voted to legalize all drugs, including cocaine, heroin, crystal meth. And I'm a libertarian, but I don't think we're at a point where that should happen. What say you on that general issue, Carter? Take it as much time as you need. You give a couple minutes. Well, uh, you know, I, I do in principle think that the government shouldn't be involved in, in those. So I, I, I agree with that on principle. It would not be – here's my disagreement with it. It's – it's merely a question of priorities. So uh, it seems that the elements of the left that still care about individual responsibility or sorry, individual freedom uh, seem to be focusing on the not only the least important, but possibly the most harmful or dangerous areas of freedom. I, I mean, I do agree even cocaine should be legal. But first, well, well, well before that uh, – we shouldn't have a police state in the first place, and th there's a lot of other things that should be legal. And and I think and I don't think just dropping the law is is the way to go either. I think there's probably a transition that needs to happen um, because it, you know otherwise it's kind of a shock to the system. So I don't th these aren't and, the kind of libertarians that I would support doing this kind of thing. I guess I'll put it that way. And Carter, we're out of time, and it's always great to talk to you. You have a great weekend, a great conversation with Carter, and thanks to Matt McCaw for his appearance in the first hour and the Greater Idaho Movement. We'll be back tomorrow on a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory.